Warning, this is not your father's history. This is not the history your coach taught you in high school. And you won't find it on the History Channel either. No, you see, this is the history your mother warned you about. This is History Against the Grain. With your hosts, Chris Paget and Josh Weiner. We don't believe you, because we the people. Episode 6, Hidden in Plain Sight. Welcome, Chris. Feels like it's been a while. Yeah, our sense of time will welcome. Our sense of time is, I think, warped in the sensory deprivation known as quarantine. Yeah, and then plus we had the interview thing last week, which uh, was fun, but it, it felt like we didn't really do a, a full episode, so uh, it'd be fun to really dig in. Yeah, though we will bring uh, in future episodes more very interesting guests as we did last week uh, to share their insights. So I am looking forward to that. We got to mix it up. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, we get to do whatever damage we can do today in episode six. That's right. Um, So the the website is up and running. Um, I posted a a little writing up there. So if you want to check out what I had to say about uh, history and and memory and the past and the present, that's at historyagainstthegrain.com. And uh, our writing is going to be in the historical musing section. I think it'll be a place where we can both just kind of jot down some things we're thinking about. And just you know what? You're very, you're very modest, but it was, it was a terrific blog post that you you put down, Josh. I would encourage anyone uh, to, by all means, take a look at it. Thank you. Appreciate that. It's poignant and thought provoking. So we're going to change things up a little this week. Normally we'd be doing our love hate section here, but we've got a special edition of of a new segment. And this segment revolves around a popular historian, we'll call him, named John Meacham. Turns out you were checking out the competition, weren't you? I was looking at our website on, I'm sorry, looking at our uh, our podcast on, on iTunes, and I scrolled down because I want to see how many people had rated and reviewed us. And they're staring me in the face, slapping me in the face in many ways, was a podcast called Hope Through History by John Meacham. Uh, John Meacham, if you don't know, is, I called him if beige was a person, but I think I'm, I'm thinking now if a pair of khaki pants was somehow turned into a person, that'd be John Meacham. You described him as a, a mayonnaise sandwich with a, with a crust cut off, if I remember correctly. Yes, and it's that second deal, I think, that really cinches it, right? There's, there's something uh, incredibly neat about yes. this whole thing. Yeah, and I, I think that will become clear as we proceed. So, so the point here is that, you know, any good podcast needs a rival, right? Whether or not that other podcast knows they have a rival, rivalry. But uh, hopefully you guys can, can help us create this, this beef we're trying to create with John Meacham here. And uh, I, I specifically instruct you not to go to, the, to his website, not to read it, because I wanted to hit you with this stuff so we get a true reaction to um, the awfulness that is Hope Through History by John Meacham, his new podcast. Awful, awful, but I would hasten to add very much in the vein of what we've described as a kind of triumphal U.S. history narrative, uh, a narrative of American exceptionalism, uh, as we'll see, the great man approach to history. Yeah. He is a perfect foil. It's like almost like if he didn't exist, we'd have to create him, right? Exactly. And, and I guess 
only in our world of history against the grain are we somehow the sober voice of reason and he's the nut job because in the popular culture of, of history in our country he's very much in the mainstream oh yeah absolutely so here is his description hth as he calls it i feel like our acronym is way better h-a-g we're hag hth <laughs> sounds like a street drug hth explores some of the most historic and trying times in american history and how this nation dealt with these moments the impact of these moments and how this is part you're going to love how we came through these moments a unified nation i'm swooning here his first two episodes fdr and the great depression he chose a very obscure topic there his second episode winston churchill in world war ii I think he's taking the depression out of depression. And, and the way I remember it, he wrote a book called Franklin and Winston. Yes. It's a kind of a, a buddy, maybe comedy adventure epic. I don't know. Sounds like. This is, I mean, I'm, we're, we're, we're joking around to a certain extent, but he's such a, an avatar of everything we're, we're trying to speak up against. That is, it's so perfect that he came out with this podcast literally at the same time we did. I think he, probably followed us right I think he saw we were in the market and then he had to he had to respond yeah and you know I think it's it's not it's not true that you can't judge a book by its cover Josh I think sometimes you can judge it perfectly well and perfectly accurately and in, and in this case I think we know what, what we're getting um, yeah. by, by just by the titles you know uh, that you this is a man who is not short on talent as a writer or narrator uh, he won the Pulitzer Prize for biography. Mm -hmm. Oz in uh, I don't know, 2009 maybe uh, for a work he did called American Lion about Andrew Jackson's years in the White House. And uh, you know, American Lion is very much a title that would suggest the you know the narrative in the in the in the vein of the great man of history. Historians call that. Hiography, right? That's called yeah. H A G I O. Uh, yeah. Hiography, the, the lives of saints. And uh, I mean, Andrew Jackson is one of the most controversial figures, a guy remembered for slavery, for Indian removal. And yet, American Lion, it, it tells us that the story will conform to certain conventions, you know, that historians use. Look, we're storytellers and we use. The conventions of storytelling, right? Good guys, bad guys, plot development, rising action. One can almost feel the crescendo of American Lion somewhere probably around page, what, 200? You know, I'm guessing. Right. Uh, so, yeah, we can tell a lot by how a historian chooses to, you know, create that kind of plot line, even through things like, you know, the framing of a title. And uh, in this case, it seems pretty clearly triumphant. Unless you have an inveterate hatred of lions for some reason, usually I think that would be seen as kind of heroic or triumphal framing. Given what we know about Andrew Jackson, you know, my, my better half, my very perceptive wife, Jenny Paget, suggested maybe the true title should be American Lion, L-Y-I-N-G. Yeah, he really set himself up for that one, right? Yeah, so, you know, he just represents, he's, again, he's the symbol of this, this kind of broader version of history that is, is triumphal, is this kind of great man history. Um, there's a reason why he's the guy who gets called upon to go on CNN. There's a reason why, wasn't he the, the 
uh, editor of Newsweek when Newsweek was a thing. Yes, I believe that was. And I think at Harper uh, Publishers. Yeah. Um, so you know that first episode, FDR and Great Depression. He's got Doris Kearns Goodwin and David Kennedy on it, which is just a, another group of same kind of thing. Pulitzer Prize winners also, which begins to show you what the Pulitzer Prize really, um, you know, values. Uh, David Kennedy, you probably know, is the uh, one of the lead authors of a very famous American history textbook, The American Pageant. Again, you can judge a book by its title. Yes. I just wanted to read you quickly a, a short uh, review of American Pageant. It is at heart a patriotic work that celebrates American progress and the free enterprise system while largely ignoring dissenting political viewpoints outside the mainstream. <laughs> so he's, he's finding like-minded people on these, on, these, uh, on these podcasts. Yeah, they're sort of didactic, almost moralizing you know, tales. I, I mean, maybe, look, maybe it's almost unavoidable, you know, in varying degrees when the history you're telling falls in that rubric of nation state history. In other words, the, the plot line, which accords, you know, primacy to this idea of a nation or a nation state is the objective organizing principle. And we heard Ben O'Weiner last week talking about that in China, right? You know, when you frame the story according to the needs of you know, the plot needs of the nation as a triumphal story, that's what you're going to get. It creates these spaces where certain things can't fit, right? And other things have to fit. Um, mm -hmm. And so it's almost this pre pre-written version of, of, of the past. Um, so Meacham, the perfect person for our times, the perfect person for our podcast to serve as a foil. And that's why we are from this moment on beefing with Meacham. All right, so what I want to do now, what we want to do now is talk a little about comparative history. This is going to lead into a longer segment, but comparative history is, is this tool in comparison in general is a, is a tool um, that is very useful in history. Um, it's, a, a, I think, a simple tool. Um, it's a not pr particularly precise tool. But one of the reasons that comparative history can be a little frustrating is, I think, particularly in world history, a lot of people kind of see world history as inherently a comparative history. And I find that very limiting for a, a way we, we, can, we can look at history, a very limited way to look at history, I should say. Um, because comparison, while useful, and while a simple way, a simple tool to use, it does have some limitations and should not be, I think, the primary tool we use in history. Um, and part of the reason for uh, my feeling is that it is so imprecise and it often leads to faulty conclusions. One of the problems, I think, is that comparison often has a set of values built into it. In other words, that when we're comparing things, we're comparing them in a certain way as to elevate one thing and denigrate another thing. And generally, I think that's a bad way to go about, uh, go about doing history. It also tends, and this is, I think, my, my greater objection to, to comparative history as kind of a central tool of history, it also tends to heighten the sense of separate, separateness between and amongst the world's peoples. Um, you know, there's the, the, the obviously the famous idea is uh, it's like apples and oranges, which the actual phrase has an opposite meaning of what it sounds like, right? Because apples and oranges seem perfectly comparable. I'm not the first person to say this, but to me, if you want to choose two things that are the most comparable, apples and oranges are the most perfectly comparable things. It's like our podcast and David and, and, uh, and Meacham, right? Perfectly comparable things. Uh, and yet the phrase is used to talk about things that are incomparable. My, uh, my, 
advisor in grad school, Pat Manning, used to say, it's not apples and oranges, it's apples and kangaroos. Those are truly incomparable things. Um, so so part, of, part of the problem is that, as I said, it heightens the separateness of things when we do comparison. Uh, we often compare things uh, to highlight the ways that they're different. And this becomes a tool of dividing the world, I think. Um, and it also kind of fits into what, what you're talking about. We, we, we have been talking about, about nations and boundaries, and these sorts of things that when we compare what we're often doing is creating these firm boundaries between the things we're comparing and then playing them off each other. And while that, again, that can be useful in certain places, I think at times what those kind of comparisons do is they obscure a lot of the similarities. Uh, one of the things that you're going to be talking about when we get to our next segment is how often the most obvious history is, is hidden in plain sight, right? And all we have to do is change our perspective a little bit. And this history is revealed that previously had been obscured. And I think that's something that happens when we do comparison as well. Um, there's a tendency to want to dig into details in a lot of matters. And details obviously are really, really important. Details are in many ways the bedrock of history. But there's also this, this tendency that when we dig deeper and deeper into the details, what we come up with is a bunch of ways that things are different from each other. Again, that's, that's important. Differences are important. They are worth studying. But those minute details often obscure the broad similarities that exist between and amongst human societies. Um, so I'll, I'll do this thing often in my uh, world history class where I show them images, show my students images, an image I rather, of the Great Pyramid at Giza, one of the most famous landmarks in human history, one of the most famous architectural landmarks in human history. And then I show them a burial tomb from Shang Dynasty, China. It's about a thousand years after the, the Great Pyramid was built, but it's a point in time in China where they're, you know, basically reaching that point in their history where they've got something like a, a state, um, something like a kingdom that's, that's come into being. Um, and you're starting to see many of the same things that have been happening in Egypt begin to appear in China. And so just superficially, you look at a pyramid and you look at these burial tombs and they're fundamentally different from each other in those details. Obviously, the most a clear way they're different is a pyramid is this thing built up into the heavens, basically. And a barrel tomb is built down into the ground, dug deep into the ground. Um, and so that's the thing that, that would, I think, you know, be the, be the most obvious thing to leap to make as you look to these two images. But behind that is a bunch of things that are, I think, more important based around similarities. You know, when you think about a barrel tomb and you think about a pyramid, what, what are some things that maybe you would think kind of link them together. Death. Death, right? So they're both ultimately places of death, places where you inter people who have passed on. Anything else that occurs to you? Power, prestige. Absolutely, absolutely power and prestige. They're both in different ways. They're both these monuments, right? They require massive amounts of labor. They require a massive amount of time. They require a massive amount of wealth. And so you look at these burial tombs, you look at the pyramids, you look at the ziggurats of, um, of Mesopotamia, and what they all are are these symbols of this new power structure that's emerged in these societies built around agricultural surpluses. What they do is they elevate certain people in the societies above everybody else. They are based around the command of labor. They're based around the command of wealth. And so in doing this comparison, again, the most obvious thing that points out is how different they are. And then you start looking and you start broadening your perspective, and what you start realizing is that human societies that undergo this agricultural transformation, that pursue that far enough that you start uh, emerging with these 
complex societies based around kingship and control of, of spiritual life and control of surplus, they ultimately undergo very similar kinds of changes. And that leads us to these massive monuments uh, that celebrate death, that give prestige to certain people um, and uh, emphasize the power that certain people have over others. Yeah, you know, it's such an important point because, you know, what you're suggesting is that we can actually profit by looking at two separate systems uh, or societies or, or, you know, modes of architecture or what have you. Uh, we can profit from that. We can, we can learn more about an apple by looking at an orange. That's a great point. Yeah. The similarities or differences. But what, what I think you're also saying is that, look, if I'm an apple salesman, and I bring you a comparison with oranges, you can pretty much expect that to go which way? You're gonna make the apple sound better, right? Yeah, it's gonna be an invidious comparison. You right. know, we need to you know, frame the orange as something lesser. And, and again, back to the nation state you know, rubric, you know, when we do history within that rubric and we do any comparisons, we're almost setting up that kind of, what I think we'd both agree is a kind of, um, self-interested comparison. Absolutely. You were getting exactly what we want out of the comparison. Right. And this, this is relevant for our, our discussion we're going to get into next, because I think another place where, where comparison becomes so significant historically is in identity formation, um, in the way that humans identify themselves as individuals, certainly, but also the way that societies come to identify themselves. Because so often, what we end up doing is defining ourselves in comparison with others. And so, for instance, you know, in related to the topic you're going to get into and something we'll talk much more about as in future episodes as well, there's a very easy case to be made that the notion of whiteness, kind of racialized whiteness, only makes sense to the extent that blackness exists as well and has been defined or, or the reverse, that blackness comes into existence and makes sense to the extent that people begin to find themselves as uh, by their whiteness. And by the same token, and this is where we really start getting into our key topic, our main topic for this week, freedom and liberty are most powerful when they're contrasted with unfreedom and enslavement. And you look around at the societies that are most vociferously talking about freedom, and they're often, although not always, societies that also have an example of unfreedom within them as well. And so what you want to talk about and what you're going to talk about uh, as we move on now is a different way of telling this crucial story in American history. This crucial story, you could, you could argue, in just broader modern world history, and that's the American Civil War, which is often told in a very particular way. And what you're going to suggest is that if you just shift your perspective a little bit, this hidden history reveals itself and ends up, you know, really changing the way we can think about this topic that has literally been written about probably more than any other subject in, in American history. So tell us about your way of, of thinking about the U.S. Civil War. Yeah, that's a good introduction. And I, and I want to say that by shifting our perspective, we're not, you know, or, or altering even the plot line you know, we're not, it's not just a conceit of storytelling. What I'm going to argue is by shifting our perspective, we get a better history in the sense of being truer to the facts, better supported by evidence, 
more coherent, fewer examples of sort of repressed memory, you might say. Um, so here's why, yeah. And I, I, you know, I want this to be a discussion. I, I'm, I'm not here to lecture. It's the Civil War is a great example. One of the most popular storylines in all of American history telling is that of the Civil War, which typically is conventionally told is employed, the story, the plot is employed to feature white heroes and sometimes villains doing battle over sacred values such as liberty, freedom, democracy, and slavery, uh, I guess on the villain side. But in the end, the great heroes of the piece uh, on both sides are redeemed and reconciled in the national fabric of a reunited America in a, in a white, a triumphal white version of the story. And, and the best example I can give of this was the quite popular and, you know, sort of career catapulting a documentary by Ken Burns uh, back in the 90s called The Civil War. It was about a nine-part PBS documentary done in, in Burns' inimitable style of storytelling, you know, with the mood lighting and the, and the song. Morgan Freeman, Morgan Freeman doing narration, your favorite guy. <laughs> Yeah, and it very much touched on those themes of redemption and reconciliation. And, and, and look, you know, I mean, one of the most familiar memes of history, even for folks who don't spend a lot of time thinking about American history, is, you know, what? Lincoln freed the slaves. You know, a catchphrase that, you know, not unlike others, uh, Columbus discovered America, no taxation without representation, you know, offers a reassuring palliative that the American history uh, was somehow working the way it was supposed to, even in the Civil War. That is a, a story of progress driven by the you know, inborn desire of white people for liberty, freedom, and lots of room to grow and expand unfettered. And, and where you do get the contradiction like slavery or even the Civil War itself, you know, not to worry because in the implotment of that story, these are just dramatic episodes written in you know, like plot lines in the old TV dramas we used to watch, you know, no, no matter how entangled and no matter how precarious seemed to be the hero's fate, you know, it would all get worked out between the commercial breaks and resolved by show's end. You know, that's exactly what the Meacham podcast was about, right? That there's crisis, but the end result of every crisis is a more unified nation, right? So it's just <laughs> built into this so fundamentally, and, and that's exactly what you're talking about, right? Absolutely. And thus, Lincoln freed the slaves. So it's, it's essentially a kind of triumphal moment. So the Civil War storyline, most Civil War storylines, as conventionally told, kind of go like that. You know, the story, messy at times, imperfect, but ultimately redemptive. And geez, look, Josh, if we mix into the recipe a dash of popular big screen storytelling, you know, that sort of the Hollywood provides, like Gone with the Wind, you know, the blockbuster motion picture from 1939 that is arguably the most seen motion picture in American history. You get with Gone with the Wind, you get a re reconstruction of our popular memory. It's just about complete, you know, the way those those old TV shows would be by episodes end, you know, with the, the romantic image of a, call a moonlight and magnolia glow of the old South mm -hmm. to suggest that even in the days of slavery, it wasn't all that bad after all. For white people. Yeah, and even even for black people, even for enslaved people. I mean, the slave uh, characters in Gone with the Wind are by and large 
either happy or well integrated, you know, or or rather childish and therefore well cared for by, you know, the uh, the paternal masters. Well, the, even more recently, what was the um, the uh, Mel Gibson movie that was about uh, the American Revolution? You know what I'm talking about? Patriot. Patriot, I think. Patriot yeah. yeah. So in that movie, he's in South Carolina. And he's got black people who work for them, but they're not slaves or something like that, right? That's just, they didn't want any moral ambiguity in that. So they have people work for them, but they're free people who work for them in South Carolina in uh, in the 1770s or something like that. Just remove that that from, from the equation and they all get along and it's all perfectly bucolic. Well, I mean, in fairness, Ken Burns wasn't, you know, quite that over the top, but nevertheless, um, his documentary, you know, The Civil War, had a sort of uh, self-conscious epic quality to it. I mean, like I said, I think it was like nine episodes. Not unlike, say, the epics of the ancient world. You know, I think of Homer's Iliad, you know, full of men and battles and even the guiding hand of Providence. But, you know, instead of Zeus throwing down thunderbolts like in Homer, it's the guiding hand of a Christian god, complete with its own theme music. You know, Julia Ward Howe's Glory, Glory, Hallelujah. Mm. His truth is marching on. Uh, and that was one of the, the soundtracks to Burns's, uh, you know, done up in sort of quiet piano style or more raucous, depending on the mood of the plot line. But look, fundamentally, a problem worked out by white people in the rubric of a Christian nation finding itself. Becoming unified as a nation. Fulfilling its historical destiny. So let me, I want to raise something and see what you think about this. You know, there's this kind of, I don't know if it's a cliche, but something I heard from time to time is that, you know, the idea that, that history is written by the victors, right? Mm-hmm. Except for the Civil War, where it ends up that <laughs> Southerners in many ways rewrite the history in their own, you know, to, to, to kind of make their own cause more righteous than, than it would have been had, the, had it really been written by the victors. But if you shift your perspectives, we're kind of talking about, and you understand, well, who are the victors in the Civil War? And you start imagining it not as the, the, you know, the North or the South or anything like that, but uh, as this kind of elite, right? This white nationalism is in many ways the victors of the Civil War, right? That that's the way the nation is going to become united again mm-hmm. to go back to, to Meacham is through this, this new sense of, of white nationalism. Because once the slaves are quote unquote freed, then it creates this this idea that people didn't have to think about before, right? How am I going to define my own freedom if there doesn't exist this unfreedom, you know, in our backyard, right? And so it creates this new sense of identity that's not between North and South, but whiteness now becomes this, this thing, this, this uh, triumphal story that then tells the story of the Civil War in a way that, that ultimately serves the project of whiteness. Does that, that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Because that's in fact what it, what it does. And, and those of us do American history, we talk about what we call the great forgetting uh, after the Civil War, which saw not only historians, but storytellers like Margaret Mitchell wrote Gone with the Wind and others in the interests of reunion, interests of reconciliation, finding that common ground, that racial common ground, once again, of white nationalism, and essentially editing out of the history most of the complexity involving you know, the contradictions of white nationalism, certainly in editing out the stories, as I'm going to suggest here today, of non-white peoples, 
of unfree peoples, of African-American people who were every bit the central players in that story, but whose stories now get either edited out completely or so, uh, you know, done over like in, in Gone with the Wind as to leave them unrecognizable. Yeah, I mean, it's, it strikes me that, you know, you think about uh, about black folks in the in this, this, this era and the way the story is told and in, in many ways, they're not subjects of the story, they're objects of the story, right? They're objects to be freed, in other words, as opposed to active participants in this, in, in, in this process, right? Yeah, and look, I can't help myself here. Only one of the many ironies of this is that when the Academy Awards uh, were put on, you know, in 1939, 1940, when uh, Gone with the Wind was up for multiple awards, that an African-American actress, Hattie McDaniel, you know, who played a mammy in the movie, uh, won an Academy Award, uh, which was you know highly uh, unusual at the time. But was she was relegated to sitting in what was the Jim Crow section of the auditorium? In other words, even for the award show itself, uh, and even and in Los Angeles, this wasn't in Montgomery, Alabama. This was in Los Angeles, California. Exactly. So you know, I mean, Gone with the Wind was a story to reinforce romantic notions of white nationalism using black actors in dramatic roles to, um, you know, confirm the general rightness of white folks on top and, and black folks subordinate. But as I say, that makes, uh, that makes mincemeat. Uh, W.E.B. Du Bois, a great black scholar, did a tremendous history of the era of Reconstruction, a two-volume uh, majestic history called Black Reconstruction. And I often ask my students, and by the way, in, in Du Bois's edition, you know, you have black people actually taking on the roles of human beings and having agency and that sort of thing. Uh, but which do you think more people have seen in this country or, or have encountered a gun with a wind or Du Bois's Black Reconstruction? I'm guessing it's gone with a wind. Did Du Bois win an Academy Award for Black Reconstruction? <laughs> no, and in fact, in the American Historical Association, you had the same sort of tradition of, of segregation at that time. So the black scholars were essentially working in a separate track of black history, you know? But here's what I propose then. Of all of this, you know, it's an enormous storytelling conceit, Josh, this, this history, so-called, that does the work of American nationalism, particularly white nationalism, and preserves the old notion, therefore, that American history is best understood as the story of white people. It's fundamentally dishonest. And no matter how many African-American supporting players like Hattie McDaniel you introduce into the story, it remains a story about white conflict with white rebels, white warriors, white reconciliation, only ultimately uh, white nationhood. And so therefore fundamentally dishonest. And what I propose is to turn that story on its head. You know, what if white political conflicts over issues like states' rights and even slavery were not the causes of the war, as they're usually depicted, but rather more like the war itself, the effects of more fundamental cause. And, and to see that and to recover that history that I, I would argue is hidden in plain sight, we have to shift, as you say, our storytelling perspective. And that the chief causes then consist of the actions taken by black people themselves, often enslaved black men and women, 
uh, sometimes freed people. Uh, and I would argue that it, they are the central actors in this story, players in this history. Uh, and it is through their ongoing rebellion, uh, resistance, and ultimately armed conflict in the war itself that really drives the history. But, but if you look in the way that the story is traditionally told, you won't find them anywhere near the center of the narrative. Right. I mean, it's like trying to understand the Civil War based on Fort Sumter or something like that. Right. The Civil War happened because Southerners attacked Fort Sumter. And, and if that's the beginning of the story, you're going to get a very particular story. Right. Um, if you lengthen that story, if you tell the, the different perspectives, then it can make more sense why Fort Sumter was attacked, for instance. Right. Yeah. But I, I would even suggest that if you go back into the politics of the antebellum era, the sectional divide, that you're still getting an emphasis mostly on what's happening in the corridors of white political power. That is Congress, the presidency, maybe state legislatures. And because the laws at the time essentially, you know, prevented uh, black people from having full and equal political rights, you're not likely to find them present in those stories. You know, again, maybe only as, as bit players. So we have to look outside those channels of, of power, of traditional uh, political powers conventionally understood to find this really vital um, and what, what I'm arguing is essentially more, you know, along the lines of causation, you know, driving force of the, of, of the story. So let me give you an example. Okay. okay. Um, we'll take as an example, a commonplace in American newspapers at the time, uh, the 19th century, but all the way back before the American revolution, the colonial era. And that commonplace was an advertisement, a type of advertisement for the, uh, what we'll call the runaway slave ad. Uh, and these appeared in, in newspapers north and south, and as I say, in the colonial era, often placed there by a white slave owner who paid for the advertising space, uh, announcing that an enslaved person had run away uh, and that he was interested in, in reacquiring that person, usually with some basic personal uh, details in the ad, uh, height, weight descriptions, gender identifying marks, personality traits, maybe a name, they would often say, goes by the name of, as if an enslaved person didn't actually have a name. Um, and these are white-owned newspapers and mostly read by white, you know, readers or subscribers. Well, you know, Jill Lepore, the historian, did something really interesting in her one-volume history of the United States. She, she su suggested that if we were really trying to find the focus of freedom you know, or the, the, the venue of freedom in America, even before the, the revolution, we could do worse than looking at those ads, not, not because of the white slave owner or the white newspaper printer or the white readers that they inhered, but because of the central focus of the ad, which was the so-called runaway, representing maybe the most dramatic bid to define freedom that you can find. Uh, before the revolution, even before the Civil War. In other words, what, what greater clarity for the, you know, for, for freedom as an agent of causation than someone who risking life and limb and all contravention of the laws at the time is willing to strike out from the heavy control of slavery uh, in a bid for personal freedom. And so they're all over the place but they always get reduced 
to the argument that white people had over these things, you know, or the, contra or the controversies they created in the years before the Civil War, arguing over runaway slaves. I mean, look, there's a long list of national laws, starting with the Constitution, that enshrined fugitive slave laws. That is the, the responsibility of the federal government to assist in the returning of so-called fugitives. The Fugitive Slave Act of 1793. I mean, we can go down the list, especially the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850, which even historians who argue in the more traditional vein, the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850 was perhaps the divisive issue driving that wedge between North and South uh, on the eve of the Civil War. But somehow, though we recognize that, <laughs> I would argue that's an effect that the cause is the fact that somebody ran away, in, in other words, right? And so this isn't primarily a story of, of white politicians sparring, you know, over the meaning, the contested meaning of fugitive slave laws. It's principally and first and foremost the story of an individual, a person of color, an African-American enslaved person, man or woman, who has risked, again, everything to make a bid for freedom in a system that did its best, coercive best, to keep them, you know, down on the plantation. So, in a weird way, almost forgotten or overlooked, would be the central figure in that story, the fugitive. That's a great point. I like that a lot. It, it really changes the agency, and it's a great example of how this thing is staring at us for so long. This this key point that the the evidence that we're getting from these um, escaped slave advertisements is about the escaped person himself, right? right. That he, this person is what is, is the active participant in the story, uh, but it gets turned into this larger story of, of, you know, conflicting desires amongst white people about, you know, how we should deal with, with this fact of slaves um, running away as opposed to the person himself. So it's, it's really enlightening and it really changes the way you, you, you think about um, the, the story. I think so too, you know, and, and by the way, it's not a, a coincidence, you know, that this ends up being the kind of, um, well, I hate to say white out of, of history, but okay. Seems appropriate. That it was, you know, it was deliberate because at the time they, the, the, the political players were all too aware, you know, of, of how, you know, p potentially combustible, you know, something like slave rebellion was. And so keeping a lid on that, keeping a lid on many of the details of these stories was by design. Uh, you know, I'm gonna suggest here in a minute that even the prohibition before the Civil War of teaching enslaved people how to read and write, which was universal in the South, was part of that effort to deny these, these stories. And yet the thing is, the stories are there, they're, and they're accessible to us. But almost because of the language, I'd be curious to see if you agree, you know, the language of the slave owner was to refer to a person enslaved as a noun, right? As a slave, a slave. But once you accept that language, you've essentially removed the humanity from the individual and then left them, well, in the, in the laws, in the rubric of the time, commodities to be bought and sold and traded and, and acquired once fugitive, that sort of thing in return. So, you know, what historians have been doing in recent years is, you know, instead of slaves, how... How about if we say enslaved men and enslaved women and enslaved children? Because then it's an, you know it's an adjective. It's something that's done to the person by force, 
not something the person is. It's a circumstance, not an identity, basically, right? Right. We're both uh, fans of the Ed, Edward Baptist uh, book, This Half Has Never Been Told, and he makes a really a lot of great points about just the way we use language and how the language is not neutral. So he makes this, that's the place where I really, it hit me how important it is to not just say slaves, but to talk about enslaved people. But the other, the other thing he says that I think is, is really important. I mean, you talk about the, the way they're turning into nouns. He talks about, you know, people on the plantation referred to as hands, right? That the hand is all that matters, right? Because that's what the, how the labor is done. But he also takes that term plantation, which, which generally conjures up this particular notion of, of it's an idealized notion in many ways, right? People still rent out plantations, old Southern plantations to get married at. Yes. He says they're not plantations, they're, they're slave labor camps. Absolutely. And, you know, if you start calling them slave labor camps, I don't think people are going to necessarily want to plan their weddings around them, right? Um, and, and so that stuff really matters. There's all this, you know, controversy about being politically correct or something like that. But yeah. the problem with this anti-PC stuff is it, it doesn't acknowledge how powerful language actually is. Right. Oh, it's just a word. But no, it's not just a word. There's a reason why we choose the words we do. Words are not neutral. They have power behind them. And so, you know, when we say we're being politically correct, we're recognizing the power that language clearly does have. Oh, I'm so glad you made that point. Uh, it's not political correct. You can't dismiss it honestly as political correctness. Uh, it's much more important than that. You know, um, it's truth and falsity. It's it's history and the hiding of history. Look, I mean, once you restore to the individual humanity, then you have to also accept that with humanity comes perspective and a point of view. And so what I'm suggesting, how about we look at the point of view of these fugitives, uh, of these enslaved men and women, to see what history is there. And look, I'm not the first to suggest that. this has been uh, going on for a while now. But but again, my point is that in the rubric of U.S. national history, the U.S. history survey, it still gets sublimated and is miscast, I think, as a maybe a, a subhistory or, you know, kind of like Black History Month itself is kind of an adjunct to the bigger history. So I, I want to put it right at the center of the story you know, and take those limitations of the nation state and all that John Meacham wants to do to preserve it in story form and to rewrite, you know, rewrite the story. And um, look, sometimes we have the direct testimony to do it. The evidence is there. And what we see, as we've suggested, hidden in plain sight is a very vital story, a very vital history that does more to explain something like the Civil War than just the conceit of white people disagreeing over property or states' rights or something, you know, uh, because it was enslaved men and women and free people of color who were working and risking their lives ultimately to make good on that promise of freedom, a promise that had been cruelly, uh, you know, denied them in the past in such a way as to even make their stories, their histories disappear. And so just some, uh, you know, kind of quick examples of this, right? of causation, in other words, of, of black people causing American history in a fundamental sense would be the rebellion of Nat Turner in 1831. Nat Turner's rebellion in Southampton County, uh, Virginia, which sees the largest and bloodiest slave rebellion of the 19th century in America occur when an enslaved man, Nat Turner, uh, who was literate, who had great awareness of the times in which he lived, uh, including debates over slavery, led ultimately 
an armed rebellion against the slave owners of Southampton County. Uh, and when the smoke had cleared, over 60 whites were killed. Uh, the Virginia militia was called out. Ultimately, the rebellion was put down. Turner fled into the woods, hid out for weeks until he himself was finally captured. But Turner did something very interesting, Josh. You know, before his execution, he was found guilty of you know, conspiring to rebel and carrying out rebellion. Uh, but before he was executed, uh, his jailers allowed him to issue his confessions, as they were called, to a white lawyer who came into the jail and interviewed. Uh, basically, didn't interview Turner. He just gave Turner the room to speak. And then and the confessions of Nat Turner, which had been, you know, fictionalized, William Styron did a novel. Um, on their own, as a document of history, give us lots of perspective from Nat Turner. Because Turner was immediately framed as a zealot, a crazed figure who led a murderous, homicidal rampage against the good white people of Southampton County. But that's not who comes through in the, in the document, the confessions of Nat Turner. Uh, this is a self-aware individual. Now, he's an individual living at the time of great religious excitement, you know, he's roughly contemporary with the Joseph Smith and some of the other sort of charismatic religious figures of the era, what we sometimes call the Second Great Awakening. And so he very much couched his story in terms of a kind of messianic evangelical Christianity that had God, you know, emboldening him directly to, to free his people, uh, much in the vein of, you know, Old Testament storytelling, like the story of Moses and, and you know, the, uh, the bondage of Pharaoh's Egypt. And this was something that really terrified whites because, you know, the people that were killed in Southampton by, by Nat Turner's rebels were people that they were on good terms with, or at least that the white slave owners thought they were on good terms. They were, they were their people, their enslaved people. And there was always that paternalism present in the South, you know, that had slave owners convinced that, their enslaved people were just extended members of a, you know, a kinship, um, a family. But uh, these were the people that were killed by Nat Turner's rebels, uh, who, according to the, you know, the story Nat Turner gave, this was necessary to gain freedom, uh, freedom promised in America, in other words. And so armed rebellion, in this case, gives us all kinds of, of clues as to the historical causation of the conflicts that follow. Because among other things, you know, what will happen in the South in response to Nat Turner, harsher, stricter, more rigid slave codes, less tolerance for education. There will be laws written in every Southern state against teaching, uh, against teaching enslaved people to read or write. Uh, a censoring debate in Congress called the gag rule, which now prohibits the free and open debate of slavery uh, in Congress, uh, which then creates its own backlash by Northern politicians who are resentful of what they see their traditional rights of free speech in Congress uh, being limited. And so it, it kind of it helps, you know, uh, energize others who wouldn't have necessarily paid much attention to it. And a lot of the political debates that follow in Congress between North and South, in fact, one could even argue that kind of the, the demarcating now of a North and South will happen as a result of Nat Turner's rebellion. Uh, and it's not just Nat Turner, it's other actions taken by both slave and free, enslaved and free black people, whether it be the writings of free black people in the North, people like David Walker, or the actions of enslaved people like 
famously Frederick Douglass, right, who himself becomes a fugitive, getting back to that theme of fugitive. Douglass is born a slave on a, a Maryland plantation, but comes to believe in the inherent justice of escape and resistance to slavery and will ultimately make good on his promise to escape slavery and, and ultimately write his famous narrative, the narrative of the life of Frederick Douglass. And, and one of the really interesting things about that narrative is that, you know, Douglass is reluctant in the beginning to name names. That is to say, who helped him uh, escape from his enslavement in Maryland? Uh, because he doesn't want to get him in trouble. It reminds me of what uh, your brother was talking about last week, you know, with Tibet, where you got to be careful because those powers are still there. You know, those powers of national coercion are still there. And if you name people, then they put themselves in, in harm's way, right? Mm -hmm. so, so Douglas didn't want to name names. But he tells us that when he arrives in New York City uh, on freedom's ground, as it were, the, the only people he can trust and turn to are either other fugitives like himself or free black people who understand the risk of being re-enslaved, of, of being taken back into captivity by, you know, the slave catchers and slave hunters that, that were then in New York City. And so he acknowledges these people, but only later is he able, after the Civil War, uh, more free to say who they were. And, you know, we find out about people like David Ruggles, who was a free person of color, David Ruggles, was an abolitionist who, you know, agitated against slavery, who, who worked to help freed slaves, fugitives, uh, in what's sometimes called the Underground Railroad. Uh, Eric Foner, one of our, uh, you know, deans of American history, has written a book uh, on, uh, on this whole business. And, uh, you know, he talks about how David Ruggles, you know, forms a committee in New York, the Committee of Vigilance for the Protection of the People of Color. And it's a radical biracial organization created to aid fugitive slaves and oppose slavery and to inform enslaved, you know, fugitives about their, their, their rights in New York. And, and there are laws passed now that will reflect the rights of fugitive people who reside in New York for a certain term, uh, who gain rights under the laws of New York, in other words. And these laws themselves are the, 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 the effect of, of the causes that people like David Ruggles and, and Frederick Douglass and others, the names we have now, Thomas Van Rensselaer, himself a former slave who escaped from slavery in New York itself, became an agitator along with Ruggles. The press, recalling one incident at the time, referred to Ruggles as an, an insolent black fellow, a notorious and impertinent meddler. For his part, Ruggles was undeterred. We must look to our own safety, remembering that self-defense is the first law of nature. So these stories of fugitives, of enslaved men and women who not only had agency, but self-awareness, perspective on their own futures as free people who risked life and limb. And what Foner finds in his book on the Underground Railroad is this and as we know, this was not an uncommon occurrence. It's estimated that the numbers are difficult to know because they were deliberately kept secret at times. But from about 1835 to the Civil War, as many as 5,000 fugitives each year uh, attempted to meet, you know, the goal of freedom by, by running away and hazarding their, their lives. 5,000 a year. I mean, if you add that up over 20, 20 plus years, we're talking about tens of thousands 
of people who are forcing the hand now of politicians, North and South of Congress to write tougher, stronger fugitive slave laws like the slave law of 1850. And uh, as, as Fenner points out, when, when South Carolina is the first to declare secession, right? In 1860, in late 1860, essentially inaugurating the Civil War, that the longest paragraph in South Carolina's secession manifesto uh, cited as the immediate cause of their secession wasn't the even the the issue of slavery expanding across the West, but was what they felt were northern obstruction of the return of fugitive slaves. So again, at the heart of this story are these people themselves who forced that issue. Uh, and uh, look, they ran away from any reasons, but they were personal reasons. You know, had everything to do with their own humanity and conception of freedom. This is no, let me hasten that, there's no conceit of storytelling I'm talking about here. We can supply all the evidence, amp, amply supplied <laughs> direct evidence of this truth, this basic truth that the, the greatest political crisis leading to the Civil War, yeah, oriented around slavery, but even more specifically around the actions of enslaved men and women and free uh, people of color the actions they themselves took. So look, Lincoln didn't so much free the slaves, as my very perceptive wife, Jenny Paget said, the slaves freed Adrian Lincoln, because remember in his first inaugural address, Lincoln promised no interference with slavery. But within two years, he's issuing an Emancipation Proclamation. He's issuing the Gettysburg Address, largely because during the war itself, enslaved people, men and women, took the opportunity to escape, to become fugitives, to seek haven behind Union Army lines. You have Union Army commanders that are riding the federal government, riding Lincoln, saying, what do we do? We're not a social welfare agency. We can't care for these people. And so they created the Freedmen's Bureau, which was a social welfare agency. But even more than that, where the military inclination was to arm these scores of, of fugitives. Let, let the men fight. They want to fight for their freedom. And, and before the end of the Civil War, as you know, upwards of 180,000 black soldiers fought in the Union Army, many of them former enslaved, you know, people. And, and I'll end here today by saying that, and it was the chief manpower advantage, by the way, the Union Army, I think most historians agree, had in the war at a time when the war wasn't going really very well for the Union Army. And, uh, now, I want to end with a, with a quote afterwards from Martin Delaney. Martin Delaney was a black abolitionist who worked for the cause of, of emancipation and later after the war for Reconstruction. And he's addressing here in 1865 uh, the freedmen of Adisto Island, which is one of the uh, seacoast islands of South Carolina, and, or excuse me, of St. Helena Island. There are many of these seacoast islands uh, where formerly enslaved people are now suddenly emancipated after the war. And he tells them, he says, I want to tell you one thing. Do you know that if it was not for the black man, this war never would have been brought to a close with success to the union and the liberty to your race? I want you to understand that, says Delaney. Do you know it? I will tell you slavery is over, he concludes, and shall never return again. We now have 200,000 of our men well-drilled in arms and used to warfare. And I tell you, it is with you and them that slavery shall not come back again. And if you are determined, it will not return again. That's amazing. So a couple things here. You, you know that those bumper stickers, freedom isn't free? And so they're very, they're very militaristic, right? right? 
So the idea being that our freedom comes from our military, basically, which seems like a very pretty un-American way to conceive of that. But there is some truth to this idea that freedom isn't free. But the problem is that we we give credit to the wrong people for freedom so often. And this is such a, a clear case where, you know, the traditional narrative to to quote my students sometimes, we freed the slaves, right? But what you're saying is that the, the basically enslaved people made slavery such an untenable institution at a certain point. They made their worth to the North, to the Union armies seem so obvious that those in power had no choice but to essentially rubber stamp what had already become reality. Yeah, and I think that that's the, the central point here is that as you as you suggest, I mean, Lincoln was really a reluctant abolitionist. Uh, it is the course of events, particularly as they were instigated by people of color, enslaved and free uh, during the war itself that will force the hand of the Union Army and then the federal government to recognize emancipation, um, you know, as a war aim uh, and to create the abolitionism of, of slavery. So it's in that sense, I think that the slaves freed Abraham Lincoln in terms of the cause and effect. Of it. Right. You, something that, that also occurred to me, you know, we started obviously talking about John Meacham and if it was up to me, we would have done a full two hour episode just on Meacham, but you talked me down. So thank you for that. But, but just something that, that his type of historian really typifies is the idea that they have, they tell these stories, they tell history and other people have ideology. They don't understand their own, the, the ideology that's built into their own writings. Right. You know what I mean by that? Mm-hmm. That they're serving the interests of somebody when they write the stuff they write. But what they see is that they're just telling a story and that people who want to tell the story you're telling are engaged in some kind of ideological project. There, there is a privilege to, to people like Meacham who believe that their version of events is the version of events and anybody else who writes differently is, is engaged in some kind of political work that they don't have to engage in. Yeah, and I would tell our listeners or anybody else that the quickest way to sniff out a phony, you know, is, is to, for the historian who claims that that's not the case, the historian who's just telling the story, letting the history tell itself, there's no such thing. And so at the very least, what you want from your storytellers is full disclosure, right? Uh, given that we're all trying to put the elements of a story together, you know, where is the evidence? What, what's being left out? Who's being left out and why? Because otherwise what you have is a cover up masquerading as a history. Absolutely. All right. So we're going to close out with, as we like to do a quote and Chris pulled up a good one from French enlightenment thinker, Pierre, Pierre Bale. I might be mispronouncing his name, but let's just pretend it's Pierre Bale. Hit us. In our California, our California patois, it's, it's Bale. Pierre Bale, the corruption of manners has been so great that the more a person endeavors to give faithful and true relations, the more he runs the hazard of composing only defamatory libels. Now, let me, uh, <laughs> let me unpack this. He's talking here about historians, in, particularly in his time, who went searching for the truth, found it, we're completely appalled to find often how dastardly and villainous were the, 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 the power players in history, that when they actually tried to write about it in truthful terms, it all, come at, it all came out sounding like a libel against those people. In other words, by telling the truth of their misdeeds and actions, it appeared that the storyteller was simply libeling the subjects of history. Does that make sense? It does. And so... I guess the point we finish with today is that 
there's a certain danger <laughs> to telling the truth. You know, uh, I don't think John Meacham is risking some great backlash, you know, from the interests of an establishment that sees the telling of the national story in triumphal terms as the basic point of history. But when you start telling the story by resurrecting the dead, if you will, by uncovering those stories, you're liable to run foursquare into what Pierre Bale suggested was the indignation and, uh, you know, sort of counter of those who feel themselves now to be somehow libeled. And, you know, I, I was reading the story in the Times the other day, the New York Times, of a Yuri Dmitriev who lives in Russia and as we speak is in prison, is, is sitting in a Russian jail on a trumped up charges of, well, they're calling him a, a pedophile. They claim they found pictures on his computer, but everyone seems to understand that's just a contrivance that really why Yuri Dmitriev is in jail as we speak is that as an amateur historian, he dedicated his life to uncovering the mass graves of Joseph Stalin's victims, of the Stalinist purges, in other words, and actually found one near his home in northeastern Russia and then told everybody about it, right? Now, in the current regime of Russia, looking for a guilt-free past that holds Russia blameless and sees instead Russia's many enemies internationally as being the villains of the stories told. And according to one Russian official, Dmitriev had erred in telling the story of this, of this gravesite by creating a, quote, unfounded sense of guilt for the Russian people, and that this would be used by, quote, foreign powers for propaganda against Russia. And, and by the way, the, the uh, state-supported institution that does the formal histories is known as the Military Historical Society. It's a state-funded organization notorious for its nationalist takes on Russian history. So yeah, Yuri Dmitriev sitting in jail for telling a story, well, by all evidence seems to be a true story, but one that in the rubric of Russia's nationalist storytelling now becomes a libel. So hard to even wrap your head around this idea of this post-communist Russian state seeking to bury the the crimes of the communist state, you know, at this point, what, 80 years ago, 90 years right. ago, something like that, that they still see that as, as something that fundamentally must be buried instead of, it's perfectly easy that you could, you could use it as a legitimizing device that this was the past and we've now moved past that and we've built this new Russia on the, on the kind of ashes of that old, that old society that used to do stuff like that. Well, as John Meacham could too, uh, you know, instead of American lion, you know, Andrew Jackson, he could embrace this storytelling of the fugitive to demonstrate just how far we can go toward rectifying that. But they, but they do get buried. And, it's, you know, it's, it's an embarrassment. It, it's a contradiction, whatever you want to call it. But uh, there it is. Well, it's been fun doing this again. Yes. I like doing the interviews, but it's fun talking to you for an hour. And we should do it again. Thank you, my friend. I know we'll do it again because our heads are bursting with more dangerous history. This has been History Against the Grain. We'll talk to you next week. Take care. Nobody is innocent. It's a sin when you play into ignorance. Another one closing your eyes again. So you don't have to see what's happening. Then now, what's going on in these streets? You can't live by what you see. So...